Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. The fans have won already. What a spectacular week of competition we have seen. On this show, it's Tyler Crosto and Victor Alvarez, two of the most young and innovative track operators in the country. And there is not a happier human being on planet Earth than the woman in that pro stock car. Young guys with big ideas in the world of drag racing. Goodbye, Snake, and hello, Ace. This is the NHRA Insider. And the wildest day in the history of this category is finally complete. Hey everybody, Brian Loans here. Welcome to another edition of the NHRA Insider as we continue to creep our way ever closer to our first race of the season in Gainesville, Florida. The Gator National is going to be kicking things off on the national event front. The Baby Gators the week before, kind of the, uh, not the first NHRA Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series event of the year, but certainly one of the big headliners to get things kicked off, especially on the East Coast. We are about, I think about 60 days, a little bit less than 60 days from all that stuff coming to fruition at this point and uh, we're continuing to take stock of the world of drag racing looking around the world of nhra kind of following the news as it comes in different teams stating their uh, intentions if you will stating what their plans are going to be for 2021 and it's shaping up to be pretty interesting i'm already hearing a lot of uh, good buzz about the gator nationals certainly hearing a lot of good buzz from teams that are excited to just get back out on the racetrack and go competing Hopefully, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to hear some news from teams that are in the midst of sponsor hunts uh, in order to not spoil the uh, punch, so to speak, for those teams. Some of them, uh, teams I've spoken with, have told me that they have made uh, significant progress in chasing some of that ever uh, present money that you need to have in the world of NHRA drag racing or any motorsports. So, Here's to hoping over the next couple of weeks those sponsor deals go from being very strong potentials to uh, sign deals that will put teams so, so solidly, I should say, back on the track in 2021. This episode is going to be cool. We're not actually talking to racers this week. We're going to talk to track operators, two track operators, Tyler Crosno, who is the uh, the manager, I believe the general manager is title. We'll get that from him at Virginia Motorsports Park, an NHRA Camping World Drag Racing Series national event facility. And Victor Alvarez, who is the uh, the owner and track operator of Bradenton Motorsports Park in Florida, a place that has great history. has been open since the early 1970s. And while it is not an NHRA national event track, they do have a lot of NHRA divisional activity there. And he's one of the most innovative, kind of forward-thinking, experimental track operators in the country. So I want to talk to both of these guys because they are both way younger than me. And they both have a very long future in the sport of drag racing ahead. And I want to talk to them about confronting the challenges of what 2021 will bring, understanding what they learned in 2020, how they apply that to this 21 season, and then talk to them about some of the trends and things they're seeing at their own facilities. I think it's really important as a sport that we continue to talk to our track operators, continue to understand what they do and how they do it, because ultimately the things that they are working on on the local level can certainly translate up the scale to to larger scale things. And so the track operators really are in so many ways, the kind of frontline boots on the ground when it comes to the business side of the sport of drag racing. They see what people are coming to do. They see what people are driving. They see how they're driving it. They see what types of competition and what types of events kids or any sort of drag racer wants to participate in. So looking forward to really getting down into the nitty gritty with those two guys just because of, uh, of who they are, have a lot of respect for both of them, and they have uh, done big things in the sport uh, in the, at their relative youthful ages, which, uh, like all of us, getting older by the minute. But these guys definitely, for 100% sure, represent the next generation of track operator and innovative thinker in the sport of drag racing. If you have not been paying attention to the NHRA's social media side of things, you need to. We've been doing some fun stuff. We did a show last week, which you can find on NHRA's Facebook, called Burn Down, Breakdown. And it was myself, Matt Hartford, and Erica Enders looking back at three of the most iconic burndowns in NHRA Pro Stock history, with both of them giving their perspective on what they kind of thought, what the normal starting line procedure is in terms of their mentality, and kind of placing themselves in the driver's seat and relating some of their experiences on the starting line as well. Uh, the, the fact that those two people were the ones on the show was no mistake. Uh, we remember last year in Texas, uh, of course, Matt Hartford and Eric Enders had a bit of a starting line duel there, of their own, which they do get into uh, snickering and bickering a little bit about during the course of the show in good fun. Obviously, that happened a while back. It's water under the bridge now, but it is all about gaining that competitive edge on the starting line. And make sure you check that out because uh, great clips. We go back to the 2005 Warren Johnson-Dave Connolly burn down. 
We go to the 2015 Larry Morgan, Allen Johnson burned down, both of those previous two at Denver. And then the, the, the big capper is the 1994 uh, showdown between the late Scott Jeffrey on and Warren Johnson down in Texas, which, you know, in so many ways stands as, uh, in my mind, the most iconic modern drag racing burn down that there ever has been because of the role that Buster Couch played in the whole thing and the kind of intensity that it brought with it. All three of those came in final rounds at those various races, and um, high-stakes poker being played by all the competitors. You'll see how it absolutely works out, and you'll see what the impressions of uh, both Matt Hartford and Eric Anders are as we watch the footage and they kind of talk us through it. Also, we've been doing a great series of NHRA Shop Talk shows. If you've not watched those, myself and Alan Reinhardt, uh, joined by a guest. Uh, typically, it is an industry expert, and we've been doing the last uh, month of those shows on Wednesdays. We'll be doing one on Friday of this week. You can tune in and watch that on NHRA's YouTube page. You can also watch on Facebook or on NHRA.com. The theme of the last several weeks has been power adders. We did a show on turbos, a show on roots blowers, a show on centrifugal superchargers, a show on nitrous, and then this week's kind of big wrap-up show for our power adders will be screw-style superchargers. So uh, we have the folks from PSI Blowers coming on to talk shop with us, if you will. That's why we call it Shop Talk. Um, when we talk about screw superchargers, you're going to want to listen. You're going to want to watch. And if you're a gearhead that loves the horsepower making uh, kind of science and technology of drag racing, this will definitely be a show you don't want to miss because screw blowers are incredible, incredible um, pieces of technology. We know what they do in alcohol funny cars. We know what they do in outlaw style door slammer racing. Uh, they are power makers, extraordinarily efficient and very, very cool. So that's really kind of the scene leading us into this show this week. Uh, it's been kind of an interesting situation uh, in terms of uh, me personally. We, we moved the show a little bit later this week. I was able to go down uh, to do some work with the folks at Toyota. Uh, Toyota will be celebrating their 20th anniversary in the sport of NHRA drag racing soon. So they're looking back in a retrospective way to talk about some of the history that they've been involved in, some of the people they've been involved with, the teams, the operations, the iconic wins, the championships. And so uh, I had an opportunity to go to the Toyota Performance Center in Charlotte, North Carolina, for a, a sit-down interview to talk about those things. And I'm sure we'll be seeing that footage uh, roll out over the course of 2020. They had all of their drivers coming in, of course, following all protocols, social distancing. Everybody was spaced out and blocked out as far as time went. But over 50 drivers Toyota has across the motorsports landscape were going to be coming through for various interviews and photos and things of that nature uh, over the course of about a two-week span. Your favorite NHRA drivers that uh, work with Toyota included, of course, Antron Brown, uh, J.R. Todd, Doug Coletta, uh, the list goes on and on. Del Worsham, Alexis DeJoria, uh, Larry Dixon was down there as Larry Dixon won the first Toyota, um, the, the first top fuel championship that Toyota was involved in. And so it was a very great experience, and certainly it's always good when a company like Toyota is investing the resources into looking back and honoring you know, their own history and the history of, uh, of what they feel is an important part of their motorsports legacy in NHRA. So that was cool, and we'll be looking forward to seeing that content roll out pretty soon. So as we have no real crazy breaking news this week, we're going to roll right into our first interview here. This young man is my friend. His name is Tyler Krasno. He is the man in charge of operating Virginia Motorsports Park on the day-to-day, -day, whether it's cutting the grass, prepping the racetrack, or building the schedule. This guy does it all. Hey, Tyler, how you doing? How's it going, Brian? Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, thanks for coming on. And, um, you know, the theme of this episode is really having conversations with two of the two really the youngest uh, track operators in the country at two of the highest profile racetracks. So I guess my first question for you is, you know, we've officially put 2020 in the books. Obviously, things are still looking a little wacky for 21. So I want to talk to you about some of the lessons you took out of 2020 and how you can maybe apply them to what we're doing this year in 21. Yeah, it's funny. Everybody looks back and they're like, oh, man, we're so ready for 2020 to get done. Yeah, like the light switch is going to flip and everything's <laughs> going to go back to normal. But, but we sit back and we're, we now look at, at things that we learned in 2020 and, and a lot of racetracks didn't didn't have the opportunity to learn like we did and, and i i hate that for them because there was a lot of stuff that you look back now and you go oh don't do that again yeah but but you also look at stuff and you say man you know we learned a lot as far as technology as far as time slip applications and and gate processes and, and things changing on on a side that is potentially money saving for the business 
and for the user it, it's for some people it's it's a little easier you know for the for the younger person that's on their phone 24 7 and lives with their thumbs moving faster than their mouth most of the time <laughs> the, the, those people like the, the technology side of it and then when you have the old school I've, I've been here since 1965 and yeah you know so, son, I've seen more more grass grow here than you'll ever see. And, you know those, those kind of guys that uh, they, they don't like it as much. But at the same time, you know it's it's a different world since March 2020, and it has been for everybody. And the things that we can take away from from 20 moving into 21, I uh, really feel like are are positives all around. And let's be honest, it's not going away anytime soon. Yeah. Um, who knows if it's even going to be better? in 21 no, nobody knows yet um i know for for virginia some of our restrictions got tighter through the holiday season so so currently where we are we're actually tighter and and held down more than we were most of the most of the racing season in 2020 um so hopefully you know as, as we get closer to the season thing things open open up freer and, and get back to at least where we ended that, that's kind of my my hope for for 21 yeah to start the year where where we ended 20 um for us we were in a very good spot uh we could run 98 percent of our entire schedule um with the restrictions that we had sure so so we were blessed with that i know a lot of other places were, were definitely not in those shoes so it's it's definitely a thing that for me um was my first season in the office and on the racetrack years past i had just been on the racetrack side um, outside the office. What a great, what a great year to have that day. be. What a great year to have that be your first one in the office as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let me wear that hat for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, but, but I can say that going into things, it was a lot. And it sounds weird to say this, but you kind of go in there and you go, "Oh, let's take the risk away." Yeah, and and not just say, "Oh, you're going to come pay me seventy five dollars to run Super Pro this week, and we're going to let you run for eight hundred or a thousand but just be. Be more, more smart, more. And this is going to sound terrible, but more realistic. Yeah. Of okay, we we know we can count on sixty Super Pro cars for this race. Well, let's base our numbers around fifty. Yeah. If we get sixty, cool. We we know you know we're safe. But if something happens, weather looks iffy, and you have forty five, you're not taking a complete hit. And and just being a little bit smarter about business operations and and cost and, and let's be honest while we're in business our customers are either not at work could have taken a pay cut and, and all of that and, and you have to keep that in mind as well to keep it affordable for people to still come out and enjoy you enjoy their hobby and enjoy their their hot rods yeah one of the questions i had and you brought it up at the beginning of your answer when we talked about some of the technology stuff the time slip app and you know a lot of uh, touchless you know touchless payment to get in the racetrack all that type of stuff touchless tech cards all that whole thing how how long do you think it would have been without the stuff that happened last year for that to actually move ahead because it went from being this kind of novelty thing to then within a couple of weeks it basically went to every track around the country where it was like oh you don't have the time slip app that's weird it was crazy how fast it actually spread it really was and i'll be honest i think that would have been a there would have been people saying, man, we can do this. This would be really cool. And the majority, the, the drag strip majority would be like, that is stupid. Yeah. Why, like, why, why are you trying to rock the boat? We, we've done this for 70 years or for 50 years or, or however long that, that has been going. Why, why mess with something that's not broken? And I really feel like it made people open their eyes to, man, we're behind. And if you look at motorsports in general, drag racing was the most non-technological sport there was. Yes. And, and NASCAR taking over some of it, and, and F1, goodness gracious, they're on a completely different level. But drag racing in as a whole was was very far behind as technological sides. And this kind of took track operators and, and racetracks and, and companies and all that to go, hmm, we might need to look into to getting better at that. And, and even if it's just as far as a results portal uh, for, for post-race, uh, time slip out for during the race, um, live timing, like you said, the ticket centers, uh, online ticketing now became became very solid because it's hard to, to look at a guy and go, hey, we're selling tickets at the gate, but we've reached our 500-person capacity Absolutely. and you can't come in anymore. That, like, that's the last thing you want to do because 
the first thing that person's going to do is the downside of technology is they're going to log on to Facebook. Yeah, they're going to bury you. We're going to be yeah. the bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, one, the events that we had a strict number, we just sold tickets online and said, hey, look, this is your only option. You're going to, you have to buy online. And when you buy online, we're going to scan it when you come in. You roll right in. You're good to go. But the the selling tickets at the gate, when we were restricted with small numbers, we didn't do it because we didn't want to have that fight. We would rather have the fight of, man, I've got to buy online than I drove an hour and a half and you're telling yeah. me I can't come in. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, it, so, makes, it makes perfect sense. And, and we saw it. I mean, we saw that happen, the adoption of, of that style of, of ticketing and, and that kind of mindset was obviously by necessity, but it was something that, like you said, it would have taken years otherwise because people, you know, it's the general nature of life. People don't like to change, especially, you know, you have a lot of people that aren't necessarily of your age bracket that run racetracks and they're not necessarily looking over the next mountain to see what the coolest thing coming around the corner is. They're looking going, I don't want to change anything. I've done it this way for a hundred years and this is the way it's going to be. Correct. And, and, and let's be honest, the, the easiest thing for the human race right now is to find normalcy and say, Ooh, that's normal. Let's yeah. not change that. Everything else is changing. Yeah. Yeah. And, no, it's, and, it's totally true. And, to, and, and it's the same way in racetracks. It's, Oh, we got to change this rule book this year and we have to, eliminate the art module and, and all and, you know all the rule changes and stuff that happens a lot of that stuff gets kind of get in you get inside that box and it's like okay when you come in you buy your tech card you get your tech card here you you're going to get your time slip you're going to do this you're going to do that because it's something you've always done yes well now with with all of these operations that are having to change now it, it's kind of one of those deals where oh boy this takes a lot more time than you think it does <laughs> yeah but, but I think once once all of this stuff gets worked out and all the bugs get kind of, hey, this was we thought this was right, but now we need to do a software update because this was actually wrong. Um, as soon as it gets all worked out and everybody gets a feel for it, this will be the new the new way to do everything, and it'll become, hey, I'm I'm going racing to to X Raceway, and you don't have this stuff. Thank, huh, we got good old school. Yeah, and that's and that'll be you know to me that's like always the big moment is when when you become surprised where somebody doesn't have the the technology when you're, you're no longer surprised that they do have it you're surprised when they don't that's when you know the kind of world has changed uh, and to your point I think it's not going to be long before the racers because ultimately it does provide a better experience for the racer it, the more seamless you can make his entrance or her entrance to the racetrack his ability to get out of the trailer get through tech and get onto the drag strip itself i mean you're you're ultimately just making a better experience for the for the customer which is what you have to do in order to succeed in this business oh 100% and let's be honest um i grew up as a racer that's how i started yep. and let me tell you how much i hated Having to hear the words, did you fill out your tech card yet? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and, and it's so bad. It's like the easiest process in the world. Yeah. Instead of, hey, do you want to go change the plugs on a big block Chevrolet and, and stick your hand down between the headers? Uh, yeah, let me do that. Can somebody else <laughs> fill my tech card out for me? And, and if, if this all if this stuff all works the way that, that some of us have, have projected it, you could fill out one tech card a year. And it lasts at at that facility and hey you come race at Virginia Motorsports Park and you fill out your tech card in March well unless something changes or you move your tech card's done for the year possibly yeah I mean and if you're you know if you're the typical customer if you're if you're the local bracket racer that's coming week in and week out and sets his car up in the spring and leaves it that way basically till the fall this is perfect if you're the weekly test and tune competitor that rolls in in his same 2010 camaro every week and leaves it about the way it is then yeah this is a great it's a great process yes and i really feel like this could take could really take off in the streetcar market um let's be honest that's one of the, the most rapid growing programs in the country yeah and and somebody now you can almost give them their own identity with a car number, just like we do a bracket racer or, or a divisional racer. Hey, maybe that's something that makes them go, man, I got my own number when I pull in the gate at that place. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And this and this leads on to the next part of the conversation I wanted to have is, despite all the challenges of 20, we saw a lot of tracks, including yours, get a lot of a, a lot of a year of racing and as much of a program as they could. What are the trends that you saw in 2020? Was it... 
was it obviously big money bracket racing is going like hell right now you mentioned the streetcar scene so i want to talk to you about the things that you recognized or maybe jumped out to you over the course of 2020 as being trends that will continue to grow in 21 oh you hit the nail on the head with those two and of course i look like a bandwagon jumper because it's like oh I, i've seen that's hot but like hey I want that at my place. So, so we're opening the door. We're we've kind of built our own um, triple threat bracket series, uh, doing three separate big money races. Uh, one in June, a Mega Bucks uh, seventy five thousand main event in July, and then one more to wrap it up in, in October. But that's a market that is that is super thick right now, and there's some races that are built for. A certain style racer. Yep. There's some there's some events that are built for. All right, your 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 weekly guy goes. You know what? I got a shot at that. Yeah. But it's but it's still healthy enough that your your traveling racer looks at that and says, "Man, I, I can't miss that. That that's you know that's a pretty decent payday if I, if I go up there and, and go some rounds." So you kind of have to battle that fine line of, you know, do you. Do you completely jump headfirst into this big money bracket scene and say, all right, I'm going to go to a level that I'm diving in a pool of maybe 750 to 1,000 racers? Or do you dive into the dive into the ocean that you've got 5,000 racers and you're just trying to pull 500 of them? Um, we kind of went more for the safer route this first year. Um, don't get me wrong, we'd love that to say, hey, we're going to run a billion-dollar race, but it seems like that's a dime a dozen these days. <laughs> right. They grow on the trees, yeah. Which is wonderful. I, I mean, I, I grew up as a bracket racer, and it's like well, the biggest race that we had in our area was a five-grander, and it was like, man, we thought we were we were king stuff. Yeah. Even if you just bought a tack card, you're like, man, I was there for the five-grander. <laughs> and now it's like, man, we got weekly bracket series that are paying five grand. What are you talking about? You know, what and, is – Go ahead. It's just wild. I mean, it literally blows my mind that that somebody now, if you're good enough with numbers, don't mind driving, and and can do it, you could go professionally bracket race for your job. Your job title on Facebook and Instagram is professional bracket race. And I and think, yeah, and and I think if you and it's I, possible. oh yeah, if you and I spend enough time on this call, we could probably make a list of twenty guys anyway that we know of that are doing it. Let alone the probably two hundred guys that are able to do it on a local or semi-local basis. You know, we know the the hundred patents of the world. We know uh, AJ Ash. We know names like that because these guys make the headlines all the time. But there is a lot of guys that are just below that. Let's call it. If they're the one A level, we got a lot of one B level guys that you may not know as much, but they're out there with their stacker trailer rolling around making a living bracket racing no doubt and and, and doing it well um and you hit two names on the head hunter Patton seemed like he won more money than than the lottery did um <laughs> this past year and then aj ash shoot he steps out of the seat for a little while comes back in and goes to houston and races for three days and doesn't lose a round yeah like okay that's next level stuff and and you see that all across the country, and, and those guys are. Well, let's be honest. If you get hot, you got to stay hot, and, and you see that with with guys like Hunter Patton, where yeah. he was. You know, he goes wins a twenty five, comes back next week wins a fifty, comes back after that wins another twenty five, and but then for a little while, it's like, man, you then realize either you're going to catch a red light in the other lane if, yeah. if you're sitting in Hunter Patton's helmet. You're either going to catch a red light or you better be dang good because now you have a target. They're all coming. And yeah. and a lot of times that target comes a lot harder than the red light does. And, and you see that with in waves. Um, I can remember Pete Pennington coming out and winning everything that sold a tech card. And then next thing you know, it was like, where's Peeps? Where'd he go? Yeah. And, and then the same thing happened with um, Corey Galletti and then Hunter Patton had his time and I mean, AJ finished the year strong, but but you see that all across the country. Is you see these guys that all of a sudden, boom, they go in two, three, four in a row, and oh man, they're they're the baddest thing since sliced bread. And then a couple of weeks later, it, it's all over, but the crime. Yeah, it's a brutal it's a brutal business. And you know, the second half of this discussion is this this exploding streetcar scene around the country. And my question to you as a track operator is. The streetcar customer wants something totally different than the bracket racing customer. The guy who's going big money bracket racing 
has his own concerns. He wants the he wants the race to be run smoothly. He wants the uh, racetrack to be prepared. He wants the timing system to be accurate, and he wants things to go kind of off without a hitch. The streetcar guys aren't caring about a huge amount of prize money. What are they caring about? What is getting these kids to the track, and how do you as a track operator give them the event that they want? That is the loaded question of 2017 that everybody is still trying to figure out. Yeah. But I can tell you two guys that have, uh, Justin Keith and Chase Lauterbach of, of Street Car Takeover, um, those two guys have figured out how to get people out. And like you said, it's not a payout deal. It's not a. It's not anything like that. Um, these guys look for a good, a good race, somewhere fun. Um, they get to go have a good time, enjoy their cars, that type thing. And after that, I, I really don't don't see what what holds it. But I think it's the trust yeah. of that series. Um, and, and let's be honest, when when you're a part of a traveling deal you kind of get a little more sense of pride whenever you oh, yeah. pull in like hey yeah like i raced streetcar takeover yeah. or i raced pdra or nhra or, or whatever um it's kind of a pride thing a little bit let's be honest you you want to build that event that everybody looks at and goes man i wasn't there yeah you want to create and the fomo you, you need to you need to build the, yep. f- the fomo you got to create it and if you ever can make people on Monday morning go, man, I can't believe I didn't go to that. But next one, you better hang on because it's going to be good. And, and if you can keep that streak rolling, 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 um, then you build in the, the series. And, and I think that's what Justin and, and Chase did with Streetcar Takeover. And it's now funneled down to the local levels, um, something that we're doing new for 21. Um, our test and tune programs in 2020 just – became very very loaded was that because we were one of the only games in town was that because we have a quarter mile facility i'm not sure either one but we we ran into problems where you'd have a low four second radial car um four a nine second supra all sitting in the stage lane sitting beside each other going "Hmm, well now what yeah right and you could you could run the, the Supra first and think, all right, cool, I'm going to get him out of the way. You know, run your street car first. Then you run your, your big tire car right behind it. Well, by the time you get that low four-second radio car up to the starting line, the street car is back in the lanes going, hey, is it my turn again yet? Yeah. And, and we felt that a lot as to the fact of, okay, what what's the right way to do this and, and get everybody as much ample track time as we can. And something that we're changing for 21 is we're, we've created a program and it's as simple as you can call it. It's just called take it off the streets. And we're going to give the streetcar clientele their own night. Nice. Thursday, Thursday night, once a month. Um, and, and like you said, these guys don't really want a super prepped up racetrack. They just want track time. But they want to be able to leave their racetrack at the end of the night and have a lot of time slips or a bunch of screenshots off of a off of a time slip app and post them online and go, man, look how many passes I made at the racetrack tonight. Yeah. And I went 12-20 or 11-80 or, or whatever. And when, when that happens, at that point, you get the, the people that are from farther away saying, man, I can go down there on a Thursday night make four or five runs. Man, that's fun. I, I, that's worth the, the $20 tech card or the $25 tech card or what, whatever the charge is. And and then that continuously will build. Well, then also on the same hand, your race car clientele that just wants to come test their vehicles, um, they now see, hey, a streetcar guy might not choose to come to a regular test and tune because they have their own streetcar night yeah so, you so kinda, now yeah, you may pick yeah. up more diehard race cars that need to shake down and get some runs because now they see that the track's going to be more more prepped to what they want other than than street cars oh, that's cool that's uh that's a really neat thing and i guess the last part of this i'd like to go into is you know the, the middle ground between the big money bracket racing and the streetcar style events are events that you're intimately familiar with, whether we talk about the, your work with the PDRA series or, you know, the shakedown or your outlaw streetcar reunion that you created is the intersection of the two things where 
you the people show up one for the money and two for the racing aspect you know what i mean so talk to me about that because to me the the pro mod radial style heads up stuff is the intersection of the big money bracket racing and the streetcar scene because you have to satisfy both elements there it really is that's a that's one of those markets that's it's really finicky and i'll be honest it's a it's a trust level finicky with, with a lot of those a lot of the small tar guys and a lot of the pro mod guys um you see that as you know i think i want to go do this and i'm die hard i'm gonna go well three races in they're like Whew, this is man i, I fit <laughs> off into a pond that i wasn't ready for <laughs> and and you see that so often with a guy that comes out and says i'm gonna build a high dollar ldr car yeah and we just saw this happen a uh, guy went out and built a beautiful car um potentially a front runner went out ran it a couple times and decided this isn't for me and is, is probably going to have a difficult time making a sale on it and you see this so often and I, and I hate to see that because all that does to somebody that's on the outside that really could potentially enjoy this sees a guy that just spent a bunch of money and it just but wasn't a fact of not being competitive but just wasn't the right shoe for his foot yep and and that that guy may see that and go, well, I can't do it. And if he if that car can't do it, I know I can't do it. And it really takes a, a a wrong turn at that point. And that's what scares me about small tire racing and even pro mod racing. We see it all along, um, especially in the PDRA, where a couple of our elite top sportsman cars could be pro boost pro nitrous cars. Yeah, <laughs> those things and, are ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible, and we sit down a couple of days ago, myself and some other racers, and we looked at these guys that are making upgrades over the winter for elite top sportsmen and, and all this, and there there is no doubt in my mind that there could be 24, 25, three-second cars trying to qualify for elite top sportsmen in, in 2021. And what happens to those guys that are, that are running 370s to qualify? Do they get to a point where they say, Man, I'm 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 ready to go heads up race. Well, in, in on a facility or on a series standpoint, that's exactly what that program was built for. Absolutely, it was built. It was built for you to go out and get a speed fix and go. Man, I want to go faster. I'm going to run pro pro booster pro nitrous, and nothing different than than NHRA and the alcohol classes. Yes. saying, man, I want to go faster, and, and that feeds into into nitro top fuel and turning car, which. At the, at the same time, we all have to have that. We all have to have that feeder program, that, that level of, of competition that takes somebody to that next level, that can start in a bracket bash, realize, man, this is a cool series. I'm going to buy two chassis Cutlass or Lumino or Cavalier or, or whatever whatever your choice of car is and move into top sportsman. Well, then you realize, hey, look, I can go 440s, 450s. This is fun. Well, what happens if you go 380s? <laughs> yeah. And then they bump up into elite, and then the, the, when they get to 380s, it's like, oh, dang, I'm, I just want to go faster. I mean, damn, this is fun. <laughs> and then they then you see that car grow into either a heads-up car that runs in 632 or, or kind of builds their program up a little bit heavier, and all of a sudden they're, they're in pro boost for nitrous for us. And to see that evolution that, that could possibly continue to grow all of our series, that's what – that's the end goal for, for any series operator, um, any racetrack, is to see progression. And for the small tire world, you don't see it as often. Uh, you see that, that guy say, I'm going to go build a Radio Versa World Corps. You built a Radio Versa World Corps. You can't see that as much as, as you do in bracket racing. Uh, that transforms into top sportsman, which transforms into pro mod, et cetera, et cetera. It's a good point because, um, yeah, you're right. I mean, when you think about it, a lot of uh, the small tire side of things, a lot of people come in to the level that they want to be at and they stay there, which is not a bad thing. But you very rarely see somebody, you know, start in, in Ultra Street and then graduate through X275 and graduate and graduate and graduate. A lot of people, I'm an Ultra racer, I'm an X275 racer, I'm an LDR racer. They kind of have their identification built into the class. That's a good point. I never thought of that. Correct, and, and that was, I mean, even when I had my Ultra Street car, I, I ran, and, and that was what I built that car. And could I have crossed over a couple of times, pulled the weight out of the car, and, and put both a bigger blower on? Yes. Would I have hurt more parts than what I was already hurting? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And it was one of those programs that I said, you know, you can you can figure out a, a 2,650-pound box body and go run X275. Are, are you ready to step up that, to that level? And I wasn't. So I, I learned how you run a 3,300-pound box body with a smaller blower and, and run at Ultra Street, which was a great class and still is today. Um, it's, it's really a, something that is a good leading stone that, that you see a lot of guys jump into that class and kind of get the bait. That, that's kind of their hook. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you see that car either go into the chassis shop and get updated, then all of a sudden it comes out with a, a bigger small block with a bigger blower or, or something along the, the sorts. And you always want to see progression. A lot of times we don't get that uh, as often as we would like to see it. But at the same time, you, you have those faces and those names that are that draw others into the sport, which is almost the same as progression. Yeah, it makes total sense. Makes total sense, man. Hey, listen, I appreciate you taking the time, Tyler. And obviously, we are looking forward uh, with our fingers crossed to come to your racetrack the first week of June for the uh, Virginia Nationals. Uh, hopefully, by that point, as you said, things have uh, begun to ease up a little bit. And, you know, it's the 2021 schedule being what it is. And I think every, you know, forward-thinking human being on earth understands that uh it is subject to change and likely will change but hopefully by the time we get to that midsummer time frame we're talking about a little more stability and certainly the ability to have as many fans as we can put in the stands uh, at each one of these races oh most definitely it was a it was a quiet 2020 without any nitro at, at virginia we tried to <laughs> rattle the scoreboards and, and go as fast as we could but there's there's nothing like nhra nitro drag racing so we we definitely missed you all in 2020 um you and i got to hang out some and uh, always, always look forward to that. But there's nothing like having the having the national event circuit back on, back on the grounds, and looking forward to to hosting our first camping world race uh, in 2021. Yeah, man. Hey, Tyler, thanks so much, man. Drive safe, and I look forward to uh, seeing you down the line. I'm sure I will run into you before June. Who knows where that will be, but I will uh, likely see you soon, man. Thank you. Sounds good. Thank you, Brian. Really interesting conversation there with Tyler Crossno of Virginia Motorsports Park. It's neat to talk to him about the business of drag racing and the business of being a track operator and understanding trends and trying to deliver the best product for your customers and figuring out what that product should be. A guy who has been innovating like crazy down in Bradenton, Florida, is Victor Alvarez. He is the owner and operator of Bradenton Motorsports Park. It's an NHRA-sanctioned facility. It has long been known as one of the best testing racetracks in the country. They run pretty much year-round down there, and they run a very aggressive schedule with loads of different events. All right, so our second guest on this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast is the owner and track operator of Bradenton Motorsports Park, a place with great history, a track that was open long before this guy was born, Victor Alvarez. How you doing, man? I'm good, man. How are you doing today? Doing really well. And um, I really wanted to have you on the show today because I uh, really want to kind of profile and highlight two of the real kind of young forward-thinking guys in in the sport of drag racing and you're certainly one of them uh, i want to talk to you first how does a guy your age come to own a drag strip <laughs> you know that's a it's a crazy story because i still sometimes don't believe it myself <laughs> but but uh i've been like most of us i've been around cars my whole life and uh i got into this uh you know, with uh, growing up, my dad and all of his friends and a lot of my family were all into cars and drag racing and working on cars. I've always been into cars. And uh, in 2011, um, a friend of mine, we got together and we started a performance shop known as Induction Performance, which I still, you know, operate and I'm a part of. And we, uh, we were going to a lot of events and I really was always drawn to you know, drag racing at the track and TX2K was a big event that we would go to and so on. And, uh, we loved it so much that I got the idea that we needed to do something similar in Florida. So reached out to the right people and Bradenton is our local home, you know, our home track, our local track. And I (laughs) begged those guys to just have a meeting with me. And, uh, you know, here I am, I'm man, this is 2013. So I'm in my, I'm like 22 or 23 years old and uh, I get a meeting with the owner of the track, Alan Shervitz, and uh, I sell him on this idea to do an event called FL2K. Um, Finally convince him to do it, get two months to put it together, uh, put it all together, and it was a hit. It was great. And honestly, I just really enjoyed it. It's I've I've done a lot of things in this industry. I've sold cars, I've worked on cars, built cars, sell parts, you name it, I've done it all. But it was Honestly, the more like 
rewarding and gratifying thing. Just seeing everybody at the track and smiling and happy and having a good time and talking to people, meeting people. It's just, I loved it. So that became an annual event. And each year, my relationship with the track and Alan became, you know, better. We became closer and closer. And um, I think it was the Snowbirds, like, 2016 that uh, Alan had a heart attack. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, he calls me after the fact and says, yeah, you know, we had a good event. And then he just slips in there. Yeah, I had a heart attack. And I'm like, oh, my God, what the (laughs) hell? (laughs) So he says... Well, something that happened uh, after I had the heart attack, he said, my wife looked at me and said, if something happens to you, what do I do with that track? And he goes, you call Victor and you sell it to Victor. He's the guy. And uh, he said it. I didn't think anything of it. I was kind of flattered. And then uh, we kind of, over the next two years, would talk about it a few times to the point where we just kind of put it together and made it happen. Um, So it obviously wasn't easy, um, but he felt that I was a good fit for it. And... uh, we did what we had to do to make it happen and 2018 uh, i made it happen yeah and it's and it's been a cool thing to watch ever since because one of the things that impresses me with what you've done with the racetrack and at the racetrack is you've been able to do two things simultaneously which are very hard one you've maintained some of the legacy traditions that the track has one always known as a track that's very heavy on testing people love to go down there because of the surface and the consistency of the preparation so you've maintained that You've maintained some of the signature events like the Snowbird Nationals and the U.S. Street Nationals. But then, in between all that stuff, you have really expanded the scope of what's gone on and what continues to go on. So talk to me a little bit about that vision-wise, maintaining the past but also kind of looking towards the future. Yeah, so, you know, when I first got into this business and first got involved with Bradenton, um, I didn't really know what I was getting into in the sense that I didn't know about just the history and just like you said there's just so much that goes on like i go for my one event a year fl2k and i go to other events but that was the main time that i was really like hands-on so i had no idea so the first i mean i had to pick it up quick yeah (laughs) so you know my like you know my first snowbirds was great and my first year i really just like kind of sat back and just went through the motions and just observed and tried to maintain everything that was, had been going on for, for 30 plus years. Um, and I learned a lot about the business and, you know, I was surrounded by great people. Um, I mean, I could go, I can list a hundred people probably <laughs> that were just, just, you know, always there for me and, you know, you know, lending me an ear and giving me advice and just supporting us. But I really wanted to kind of just get a baseline. So my first year, I was kind of on cruise control. I followed, you know, what we were already doing. I still had a, still do have a good relationship with Alan, and I obviously would take advice from him. And I learned about our bracket program, and I learned about our heads-up stuff, and I learned about U.S. Street and Snowbirds and all these things. And I kind of just, again, I wanted to get a baseline. I learned about all these things, and I was like, okay, now it's time to go. So my second year is where I really kind of got fired up, and I felt confident to kind of just add some new things, change some things and just make the changes that I felt, you know, were, were necessary. So being, having the background of really being into racing, not that I've ever, you know, I, I've always raced, but I've never been like a big heads up racer. Yeah. I've never professionally raced, but I've always been a car guy. I've always been a racer. So having that uh, background, I just did what I felt I would want as a racer um, or I would want as a spectator. And, uh, from there, I kind of just started adding races. I started increasing payouts. I started to get more people involved, try to get more sponsors, um, and, you know, come up with crazy ideas that, you know, the track was very traditional before. Like, FL2K was probably the wildest event of the year because it's, like, the only lifestyle event where, yes. you know, we have a bikini contest, we have a huge car show and all those things. But I started to do those things and started to make a lot of connections and just make a you know, kind of build our audience to have a younger demographic and have more streetcar events. Like we added streetcar takeover. Uh, we do the events with uh, Cletus. We do the Cletus and cars events and like just adding all these things that were normally kind of like taboo. Um, and just, re- you know, just kind of going with the flow, seeing how the people reacted and seeing, uh, seeing how it went and just building on that. And I think a lot of it was a lot of our success has just come from, the history of the track, I, I have to give that a lot of credit. Um, people just know that, you know, Bradenton has always been a really good place to go race. Yeah. And and I, it was very important to me to kind of 
maintain that reputation. And once I earned everyone's trust, uh, it kind of just took off. You know, the we talked a lot with Tyler about the streetcar side of things these days and how explosively growth-minded it is right now. And from your perspective as a track operator, once you get those kids in the gate and give them that one good experience, they're a customer almost for life, right? I, I, I'm trying to figure out, and I, I want the message to get out to a lot of track operators that, you know, you got to sometimes step away from what you've always been doing and what you've always known. Because if you give these kids a little, you get them in the gate, it's, it's a game changer. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Uh, I was commenting on something the other day on social media. Somebody had posted something about like, what do I, what do people think are than like up and coming or big events? And um, I think the streetcar stuff is really starting to take off. And I think that it's such a big, uh, I think there's just so much potential. There's such a big outlet because a lot of these guys build these really sick street cars, which I mean, these street cars have gotten like yeah. completely out of hand. You can, <laughs> you can buy not, you could buy like nine and seven second cars from the factory now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, a lot of these guys just have no, no, like they just don't know how much fun they can have at the track. They don't know, you know, they just don't, they, they've never been invited to be a part of it. And, you know, like drag racing, the best thing about drag racing is being a part of something and being a part of the, the chase, you know, the numbers, yeah. um, making the friends at the track and learning about the track, learning about, you know, how to cut a good light and heads up racing and bracket racing and learning all these things. And once these guys feel welcome into that and they see, and you know, they get into the competition and they get that itch, it grows from there. And like, you know, there could very well be a guy who's in his mid twenties with a nine second Mustang that could potentially be the next Stevie fast. Yep. And 20 years ago, that wasn't the case because that guy would just street race. Yes. So, uh, I think it's starting to catch on. Like it's crazy to even say this. When I started FL2K, it was just a small fill in event for Bradenton. And now it's, you know, the biggest event we do all year. And it's, it's amazing to say that, but I think it, it speaks volumes to what that, uh, segment has to offer to our community and i'm really happy to see people starting to welcome it and starting to catch you know starting to see a catch on all over the country yeah and you know one of the things i that always strikes me as unique about about your racetrack and certainly you're not the only one doing it but you're one of the few in the proud is that you nearly have as many organically locally grown events that have established themselves as you do touring series obviously nmra and nmca it's a signature deal for your track now for 20 something years they've been starting their series uh you know in march at bradenton especially nmra it is the spring break shootout always has been always will be but then we look at the various localized programs that you've created whether it's fl2k which has gone way beyond anything local now but uh, go talk to me a little bit about having maybe patience or having the ability to have the flexibility to grow some of these programs because not all of them are a smash hit out of the gate and so you got to give things time to breathe oh absolutely i mean i uh you know, I have a few friends and, you know, that are promoters or track owners or whatever. And I tell people, you know, anyone close to me that does these events that the biggest thing or the best thing that you can do when, when, you know, trying to build on an event is to stick with it. Um, because every single year that you do an event, you know, you, you want to try to stick to the same time of year or the same date if possible. Um, but every, you know, every time that you do that event, it gets bigger and bigger and you earn everyone's trust and you earn everyone's respect. You know, like you come to Bradenton, you know that there's going to be a good payout. You know that we're going to, you know, we guarantee almost all of our payouts. You know that the track is going to be as good as it can be for the conditions, but that doesn't happen overnight. Um, but each year I always, my philosophy is each year somebody new comes and they post about the event or they post a video or some, they tell their friend, and two of their friends are like, man, next year I'm not going to miss it. Yeah. And that's really how it goes as long as you put on a good show. And then it just gets to the point where you're well-established and everyone knows like, man, next year in October, I'm going to Bradenton. Next year in December, I'm going to Bradenton. Or next year, you know, uh, in April, I'm going to, or I'm sorry, in September, I'm going to Virginia. Like, you know, you just know. You can count on that race. You can count on that facility. And you can count on that promoter. 
Yeah, you build your time around it. You build your vacation time around it. If you're a racer, yep. you, you physically build your life around this stuff. Uh, I asked Tyler the same question, and and it's going to be a different answer from you because your ability to have events or spectators in Florida has been different than his ability in Virginia. But what are some of the main lessons that you carried out of 20 into 21? Or wh- one of the things, give me two or three things that either you learned or surprised you over the course of 20 that you can apply to this year. Yeah, so 2020 was a very 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 interesting year for us and i think my answer will be unique to almost anyone's um (laughs) but uh a lot was happening for us in 2020 um we uh we acquired wade rich which yes i mean that might be single-handedly one of the best things that i've done since i've been there um the guy is just he's he's amazing he's a really hard worker well respected and he will give you a safe great you know racetrack every single time um but you know so that happened right when we were hit with COVID-19 uh initially like end of March that's our April uh, no, I'm sorry yeah March or May is when when that all happened yeah and we were all kind of like what are we gonna do and we, nobody knew um and I kind of just put my head down and just stuck with it and kind of waited to see and you know as we discussed a little earlier it's unique that Florida kind of was like the wild wild west for for COVID-19 um so we closed for about a month and then we opened up for just like a regular test and tune and I think we were one of the first in Florida to do that and it was huge yeah and I started to realize that with everything going on people still need an outlet people still need something to do and we're not going to force anyone we weren't even like pushing it hard but if people want to come and have a good time and be safe about it, obviously, and social distance and all that stuff, then let's give them a place. And we did, and it kind of actually just took off. Like, we were busier than normal in a, in, in a lot of ways and in a lot of our events. Testing wasn't as busy, but, you know, like, just our, like, normal testing tunes where we do a street heat event once a month, which is a Saturday night event that's been going on for years, but it's getting really big. And it's just a a movement that we've created to keep people off of the street and give them a place. So it's like a really cheap tech card um, and just a really fun time on a nice. Saturday night. Um, and those got really big. Um, and, you know, like 2020 just kind of shocked us. And then at that point, uh, I did an event in April called The Reunion. And um, it's first time doing it. We realized, you know, there were a bunch of races being canceled at the time and we were in the only state really that could do a race sure. so we, we threw something together we got uh brian crower to be our title sponsor and it was huge um it was a, it was a more of like an import event or sport compact style of, of an event we had you know import versus domestic kind of feel to it gotcha and it was huge and from that moment on wade and i kind of just looked at each other and we're like listen these people are itching to race and we're gonna give them a place and we just went crazy and it just it just worked out i mean some of it is luck. Some of it is, you know, just the fact that we're in Florida. But uh, the only thing I learned is you just got to really kind of roll with the demand and uh, really listen to people. And I think that's something that we have done pretty well. We're, I think myself, uh, Tyler, Wade, um, John Sears, I think there are a lot of us that are very present in the community. Yeah. Um, and I think that makes all the difference. There's a lot of, you know, track owners that you'll never meet, you'll never see, you'll never shake their hand. Whereas you come to Bradenton and I'm walking around all day talking to people, shaking hands. I'm on Facebook always listening and talking and posting and communicating with people. Um, and that's probably, I shouldn't even be saying this, that's probably my, my secret weapon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, that is, and, and the visibility, people respect the visibility becomes because it happens in, in two directions. And I know this from working with you at your racetrack is that, you know, when we're, when we're, when we're running the meat of, an, of the show, per se, no matter what the event is, you're on the starting line. And, um, and, and that cuts both ways in the sense of you're going to get the handshakes, the high fives, the congratulations on the great runs, and you're going to get somebody chewing on your ear when things don't go according to what they think they should. Yeah, for sure. But it, nothing falls on deaf ears. And we, you know, we're not perfect. But when we, when we, when we are imperfect, we don't hide, we don't run from it, and we don't, we don't, you know, we take ownership of it. Yeah. And, you know, you can go to a race and let's say you just, for whatever reason, you have a bad experience or you don't have a good time, you'll never go back. But if you have just something that happens, um, 
and you have somebody that you can talk to and you genuinely feel and see that they're going to make an effort to improve on your complaint or what happened to you, that makes a world of difference. And again, I just think us being myself and Wade and a lot of our staff, just being present and being visible and just being, you know, a part of what's going on with the racers and everyone and the sponsors and the vendors, I think it makes a huge difference. And honestly, if I wasn't that way or if it wasn't that way, I probably wouldn't enjoy it as much. I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, and uh, it's it's a it's a credit to you because again I, I've seen it with my own two eyes. You're definitely uh, you're definitely speaking absolute truth on that front. So I got two more things I'd like to talk to you about. The first one is um, one of the things I, I also like about your style and how you operate the track is you are a nuts and bolts style of manager. I would call it meaning <laughs> when the first round is supposed to start at noontime, the first round will be starting at noontime, and that can't be said <laughs> for that many places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, that's something I got from Alan Shervitz. Uh <laughs> you know, I didn't realize it, but I was being groomed for this position by Alan for a while. <laughs> Secretly. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like, give you an example. My my very first FL2K, I think, man, it was something like, I think Alan's son was getting, was one of his kids was graduating from college or something. So let's just say the day before my very first event there, I go down there and I'm walking around and we're setting things up and talking about how we're going to have things to send other. And he goes, hey, so uh, one last thing. I'm not going to be here tomorrow. And I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> I had like, oh, I'm trying not to show him that I'm scared or like that I'm having like a, a baby panic attack, but I'm like in my head, I'm losing my mind. But, um, he was with me all day, like texting me, calling me, checking in. Uh, he put, you know, he let all his guys know to just help me as much as possible and just teach me. And that w- went really well. And I learned the importance of all these things and how like one minute now can make, 10 minutes later, you know, and it just rolls over and rolls over and rolls over. And I realized the importance of, you know, being on time, not having racers sitting in the staging lane suited up for an hour or two hours, not having people, you know, like these are just all the things that make people upset. And, and it made me go back to, you know, like put myself in the the driver's seat and see all the things that I don't like when I go to a race or I travel to a race and improve on them. And like, you know, uh, in 2000 and I don't know, maybe 15 or 17, Alan invited me to a snowbirds and he's like, yeah, I'd like you to come out. I'm like, yeah, I'd like to come out too. And I'd like to see it. I've never been. So I go and I get there early. He, the next day he's like, Hey, what time are you going to be there tomorrow? I'm like, Oh, you know, I was going to roll in at like 10. He's like, no, get there at eight. <laughs> so I get there at eight <laughs> and he's got, he hands me a shirt and he has a notepad and I, and he hands me a notepad and he goes, uh, and he shows me like the time that we're supposed to be running at and that we have to run the jets at four and we have to run the jets at eight. And we have to do this. And I'm like, okay. So I just end up shadowing him all day and he's writing down every time. So we started this class at this time and we finished it at the time we had an oil down. It took this long to fix to, you know, get right. And I learned all these things and in my head, I'm like, this guy might be, you know, a little, uh, a little crazy about this stuff and 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 i didn't think too much of it but then as time went on i realized like those little details are what make a race and um i it makes me be i'm I'm very involved as we said earlier but it makes me just hey i want to i want to always strive for perfection and now i realize that perfection in an event a lot of it comes from just being on time and running a good show um and so all those little details i'm just very uh I'm just on top of it. I just, I want to be, I want the show to be perfect. I want the show to be good. And like, you know, like I had, um, very big racer, like big names, like pro mod drivers and radio versus world drivers come up to me at last year's US street, which you were there. And I had one in particular, which I won't name cause I don't want him to, uh, have any enemies, but <laughs> he came up to me and he shook my hand and he said, I've been racing for a very long time. And this was one of the best run outlaw events I've ever been to. And you guys, you're like you and your crew you guys killed it and that became kind of like the theme and a lot of people were saying that and i realized that that alone was going to make people come back yeah and it it felt good to do it it felt good to be on time it felt good to just run a good show and it's it's just so important and so overlooked i've been to races myself where you know they'll call us to the lanes and we're there for four hours and like by the time you get on the track you're so 
pissed off that doesn't matter what you unless right. you set a world record you're not happy and then you go up there and, and and it never works out that way then you go up there and you knock the tire off or something happens and you're just like i just wasted five hours of my life i'll never get back so like obviously that you know things happen yeah. that you can't control but yeah. when it's in if it's in your control you uh you treat that racer you know the best way you possibly can that you know how to and you give them the best surface you try to treat them with respect you try to run them you know on time and you just do you just do your best and another thing i'll say is when we when we don't when we're not on time or whatever it's never for lack of effort and people people realize that and that goes a long way as well so the last topic and you're 100 correct the last topic i want to cover with you is something that um i think pretty much every drag strip operator on planet earth would kill you to have this opportunity, which is you are the neighbor of the Freedom Factory now, which was a <laughs> former Circle Track. Uh, many people know the story. For those of you that don't, Cletus McFarland, who is a massive YouTube star, does all kinds of crazy stuff with cars really all over the world. But he bought this rundown Circle Track, which happens to be literally right next door to Bradenton Motorsports Park. You have a great relationship with Cletus. They do basically all their drag strip stuff at your track. And I want to talk to you about how much value that relationship brings to you, both on a friendship level and on a business level. And then two, um, talk about some of the fun things you've done and, and really what you'd like to see this turn into going forward. Yeah. So, uh, that's a crazy just deal how that all fell together. Um, so Garrett and I are Cletus. We'll call him, we'll call him Garrett for this conversation. <laughs> so it's a, it's a serious conversation. Yeah. Garrett and I are good friends and um he's always he's a huge supporter he always has been and and likewise like you know anything we can ever do for the him and yeah. you know we just we both push each other to just be the absolute best that we can be in whatever it is that we're doing so he's been to every fl2k uh i uh introduced him to alan to get the you know cletus and cars like going and that's taken off and him and alan have a great working relationship now and you know as do we and so we're always in each other's ears we're always in each other's corner and we're always just talking about what can we do next and i just kept itching to buy that circle track myself and finally i got a hold of the owner and i set up a time to go look at it and uh i was like All right, i want to bring somebody with me so i call uh, i call garrett and i'm like hey what are you doing this day let's go check it out so him we both go we check it out we spend like a couple hours there and I don't know how to explain it. There was just this vibe. Like we were both like, like the places it was, it was run down. Yeah. It hadn't been open in forever. The guy didn't take care of it at all, but we're just, there was just this vibe about this place. And we're both just like, man, like we need to get this place. I'm not sure how, or, you know, like what will, we don't even know what we'll do with it, but like right. we just need it. So we leave there, we go to dinner and I just couldn't bring myself to do it because I was really just in my head. I was fixated on the drag strip and I was like, I'm not in a place yet with the drag strip yeah. because there's so many things that I want to do that I want to take on another project. And I'm one of those people that like, until my first project is like, until I get an A on it, I'm not going to, and it's done and I, I can close it. I'm not going to go on to the next one. Um, and he understood that, but he was really passionate about it. So at one point in this dinner, I look at him and I'm like, why don't you get it? And that conversation took off and that was in November and then he closed in January and he ended up getting it. And, uh, it's been great. It's been great for us to have good neighbors. That's like really important in our, in our business, in our industry, in our business to have good neighbors. That's obviously great. Um, it's been great to, to watch him turn that place around, which I mean, it's, it's I'm pretty sure they're going to open. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure they're going to open here like really soon for their first event. Um, but they've been killing it. They've been doing a really good job. It's been really good to see. And, like, it's pushed everybody to do better, right? Like, he's buying equipment. We're buying more equipment. We're, we're lending each other equipment back and forth and seeing, like, strengths and weaknesses. We're partnering up on things that we can make better. Um, we've come up with parking strategies for our big events. Like, we're doing, uh, you know, SFG races. So, we'll yes. use some of his facility for parking. He's going to do certain events that he'll use some of our facility for parking. I mean... It's just, it's going to be really good. It's going to be good things to come for, for both of us. And I think that eventually, I think the goal is to obviously have our own events, but also to do like some really big events together where we have drag racing and whether it be drifting or circle track or whatever, we have both things going at once. Um, and I think it'll be huge. I think the power to, 
or the ability that we'll have to do things together now, um, you know, like we share the entrance road. Yes. Well, if I want, you know, I've always wanted to widen that road. That is 110% a possibility now. Um, so like all of those little things I think are going to end up paying dividends and just being really, really good for, for everyone involved, our racers, our fans, and just everyone. And there's a huge things to come. Like, I feel like we're almost, I've been, in the business now for three years, I feel like I'm starting over again, but in a good way, like just new blood, new, new energy. And we're going to really go crazy. Yeah. I think it's a fantastic thing. And, and to hear the fact that you guys have that tight relationship is, is great. I think selfishly, I love the fact that, that, that he connects with an audience that a lot of motorsports miss. Um, he connects mm-hmm. with so much, a, such a youthful audience. That's so enthusiastic. Um, yep. and the fact that you guys are, are really in, in some ways together on this trip is, is really cool for drag racing, for your facility and, and really for motorsports because we need to engage those people that he, I mean, he has them by the millions. So it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. No. And I've said before, um, you know, it's funny that you say that all those things I've said before that, my favorite thing of the Cletus and Cars event was that we brought so many people to the drag strip that had never, ever, ever been there before in their lives. Yeah. Didn't even know that it was there. Um, and just, we introduced motorsports to so many people and he himself has done that too. In so many ways outside of those events, he's introduced so many regular, you know, guys and, and girls and kids to motorsports whether it be drifting that he you know he plays with or you know the freedom 500 race the drag racing going sevens in a stick car and i think the long-term effects of that are just huge and highly underrated i don't think people realize all these things that are happening i mean it's a different time to be alive there's you know youtube instagram twitter facebook tiktok you name it and these guys have huge followings and there it's going to be it's going to be really good for the future of our sport agree 100 percent, victor i certainly appreciate you taking the time and i know you're a busy guy but i think um you have a voice that i really want people to hear and, and understand that uh, we have a great we have a great depth and in, in diversity in track operators across the country whether they have national event tracks whether they have a facility like yours that really is so well respected around the country so well known and so populated with unique events i, I really think it's a value for people to know that so thank you no, I appreciate it, and uh, it's always a pleasure to talk, and I will, uh, I'll see you soon. Yes, you will, man. I'll be down there for the U.S. Street Nationals, baby. See you soon. All right, sounds good. And so there you have it, two conversations with innovative, forward-thinking track operators, young guys that are getting it done. Tyler Crossno at Virginia Motorsports Park and Victor Alvarez at Bradenton Motorsports Park, two guys that I uh, admittedly am friends with, but I respect immensely for what they're doing in the sport and how they are operating their tracks and really in some ways serving as a model or a roadmap for other facilities that are looking to grow their business or to make changes or to simply diversify their schedule. These guys are pace setters when it comes to doing innovative, forward-looking things drag racing so that will bring us to the end of this episode of the nhra insider podcast with brian loans i sincerely appreciate your listening we'll be back again with more interesting perspectives and more looks around the world of drag racing on the sportsman and professional levels next week you never know who we're going to be talking to from famous drivers to track operators to the people who turn the screws and make these cars go incredibly fast thanks for listening we'll be back next week